Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys bow your heads with me before we dive in? Uh, Lord, there are so many inconsistencies in our life, so many things that we uh, can't see, uh, so many things we can't understand, but there's a wonderful uh, consistency that uh, acknowledges our limitations and uh, what we don't know, and that is your word that comes to us, uh, opens our eyes to see who you are, that you would want not only to speak to us, but that you would speak to us in order that we might know you And in knowing you, uh, we might see everything more different, uh, everything through the lens of your reality and not our own. So today, Lord, we ask that um, you meet us with what we uh, do not know. In our text today, you talk about discipline. You talk about how loving it is. And Lord, discipline is a spectrum. And there are things that are more formal and more rigid, but Lord, to actually just sit under your word is to be disciplined. To sit under the, the word of a loving God is to have our minds not just edified, but corrected, corrected from thinking wrong thoughts about ourselves and wrong thoughts about you. So we pray that you work wonderful mercies in our lives today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as the seasons are changing in Missoula outside and apparently in this room as well, um, we're spending a lot more time in our front yard. It's south facing. The snow is all melted out there. And that leads to every spring an increased amount of conversations we get to have with our neighbors as they're getting in their cars or cleaning out their flower beds. And the other day, God turned one of those conversations in a distinctly evangelistic way with my neighbor who lives across the street as uh, he began to talk about how he views God. And the way he communicated his understanding of God is uh, probably a way that you've heard others communicate, or maybe even a way that you think uh, is how you think about God right now. And what he said is this. He says, I think if we try to do what's good and we love other people, we'll all end up in the same place. Now, here's the rub. Most Christians, or I should say all people who are actually Christian, <laughs> understand that that's an incomplete statement. Yet, almost universally, if we encounter someone who is a non-Christian, whether they believe in a God who is not the God of the Bible or whether they don't believe in a God at all, they all admit that our lives should be governed at some point by the way in which we do well to others and love those who are around us. But even if you understand the gospel is not just the good news of how you can be good to other people, but the good news of how Jesus is good to broken sinners, you still shouldn't think that we can just not care about other people, that we shouldn't be kind and loving to other people. It is right that we fight for the priority of the gospel, but we also should be individuals who are concerned with how we care for, interact with, and love those who are around you. In fact, our text today in the book of Proverbs deals almost exclusively with the call Christians have to love and to do good to others. However, what we're going to see in our text today, if you really understand what saves people before God, that is what changes God's view of someone who stands in sin and brings them into God's favor, 
you will find not only what it actually means to be good and loving, that is to find its definition, but actually when you understand how God saves you, you, whether you're introverted or extroverted or like people or don't like people or live in the sticks or live in the city, will actually be empowered and more importantly freed to do good and to love others. And what we're going to see today is that God does care how we act towards others, perhaps even more than you and I casually think. Yet God's wisdom turns our world upside down. Instead of like my neighbor who thinks that our goodness and our kindness towards others earns us favor with God, is actually God's favor towards us in the gospel, which frees us to be good and loving to those in our lives in a way that without God, we couldn't be. Actually, in a way that would be dangerous and foolish for us to be from a secular perspective. And our big picture today is that those who are rooted in the gospel bear wonderful fruit for the sake of others. Those who are rooted in the gospel bear wonderful fruit for the sake of others. And what we're going to see in this text is Solomon's going to make this point through a summary of four uh, summary illustrations he uses to describe the righteous in kind of a vivid and enduring picture. And those pictures we're going to see are first the winsome fruit of the righteous. Then we're going to see the life-giving root of the righteous. Thirdly, we'll see the safe house of the righteous. And then finally, we'll see the gentle and generous fruit of the righteous. And so in addition to this other-oriented action, which has been consistent with what we've seen so far in the book of Proverbs, there's another theme that Solomon's bringing to bear, and that is the theme of what is solid and enduring with what is fleeting and empty. And we see this contrast almost immediately in our first verses, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. So we see a number of contrasts right away in this text. And there's this really big one where on the one hand, you have an individual who troubles his own household, his own community, his own family, his own friends, and inherits the wind. His reward, his inheritance, his blessing is the wind. And on the other side is what is called the wise of heart. And they are described as a tree with deep roots, a solid, sturdy tree. Have you ever tried to capture the wind? There's a number of kids in here today. I want you guys, when, you're, when your parents find you a little too energetic for your own good, I want you to go outside and try to capture the wind. Try to grab it. Try to put it in a bag. Try to catch it in a jar. And what you'll find is it's not a problem to find wind. It's almost everywhere. But it's impossible to capture it. And if you happen to capture it and close it off, the wind goes away. It stops being wind. It's impossible it's endless. This is the life of those who trouble their own household and their own community. It's endless toil with no satisfaction and only irritates people. And there's kind of two ways in which Solomon warns that we can trouble others. The first way is the person who is just making foolish decisions, not wanting to hurt people in his own household, 
And yet those foolish decisions have a corporate effect on those who are closest to you. We see this illustrated in Proverbs 10, verse 1, where Solomon says this, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Sometimes we act in foolish ways without a desire to hurt those closest to us, and yet sin hurts people. But there's also probably a more uh, intentional way that Proverbs talks about hurting people. We see that in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 14, where it says there are those who delight in doing evil and those who rejoice in wrongdoing. They love irritating people because they love being an irritant. That is the stage my eight-year-old son is with his three sisters. <laughs> he loves it. He delights in it. But just like the individual who tries to capture wind in a jar, the person who thinks they will find joy in pursuing evil or joy in pursuing foolishness realizes that as soon as he has what he thinks he wants, he opens it and finds there's nothing there. There's nothing which satisfies him. And all of this is contrasted with the enduring and beneficial nature of the wise. And this is where we see in our text the first point today the winsome fruit of the righteous. Where the foolish person is always a burden to those who are around them, the wise are a blessing. Where the foolish person irritates others to gain nothing for himself, the abundant fruit-producing life of the righteous satisfies themselves and provides benefit to others. Now, when we look at texts like this, we need to be reminded that we have an entire Bible who talks about our interaction with others. And Jesus himself adds some layers to this, and he says, don't be surprised if you're a Christ follower and people hate you. Why, Jesus says, because they hate me. We just read about that in the story of Nicodemus when Terry shared that scripture reading with us. People don't like light when they live in darkness. People will rail. You in your unregenerate life railed against Jesus. People will oppose you for the sake of the gospel. But that means that we need to think about two things. One, we need to make sure that when people oppose us and when people hate us, they hate us on account of the gospel and not because of our lack of love for them. They hate us because of what the Bible has equipped us to stand in faithfully and not of a sin that we actually should repent of and seek forgiveness from. But Paul holds this tension in 2 Corinthians 2 where he says, you are the aroma of Christ. To some, that aroma is the scent of death. It stands for everything they are failing to do to please God on their own. But to some, that aroma is life, showing what Christ has done to earn what we never could, to bring us back into the joy of God. And this text here is talking about that latter part, that our lives should be a sweet-smelling aroma that is attractive to those who are around us, that it is actually winsome, endearing, something that draws people in. Solomon here describes the righteous as the wise of heart. There's a number of times, perhaps you remember, in Proverbs, we'll see it again in verse 11 of chapter 12, I think. Solomon often speaks of the man or the individual who lacks sense. And that same word, lacks sense, that word sense is the same word translated in Hebrew here as wise of heart, sense and heart. It's both just this inward reality, this inward place of affection and emotion. And so in contrast to the fool who lacks heart, 
the wise are abundant in heart. They are wise in heart. In contrast to the offensive, wind-chasing fool, the wise of heart actually woo others to themselves. Last week, we saw in chapter 11, that there's, uh, in chapter 11, verse 17, that we are to be kind. A kind man benefits himself. And that word for kind is, and if you had a different translation in the ESV, it may be translated it differently, is the same Hebrew word for covenant love. And so the kind believer is made wise in heart because they themselves have experienced God's covenant love towards them. They have seen how God loves his people, how God redeemed his people, how God was long-suffering with his people for the sake of covenantal love. And so we become wise in heart when we realize how God has loved us. And there's this pattern in this text. The fool turns away his own household with his lifestyle, but the wise win people out of the shape of their heart. And so the question is, which I hope you would ask, is how do we get this heart? How do we become this kind of person to the community that's around us? It grows out of righteousness. Righteousness we see in verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Unlike the inheritance and the trouble of the wind, the righteous bears fruit which is itself a tree. That's astounding. The fruit of the tree are trees, is trees. I don't know what I'm agreeing with in tense there. But I remember growing up, and maybe you did too, whenever I would eat a fruit, I would take the seed and I would bury it in the ground. And I'd just, like, that's what seed, that's how all trees started seeds. My seeds have started zero trees. I have never had a tree grow in my backyard despite all of my seeds that I have planted there. But here, not only does the righteous grow as a tree, but what falls from its branches, its fruit are not apples and oranges. Its fruit is a tree. Its fruit is the tree of life. How can this be? Well, we've already seen how Solomon talks about this tree of life all the way back in chapter three. Look at how he speaks of this in verses 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She that is wisdom is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so here Solomon is talking to us in chapter 3 about Lady Wisdom, who is this allegory for God himself which we see in 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ is the fullness of Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom meets her substance in Jesus Christ. He is the winsome, relational, organizing person who tells us who God is. And so what is the fruit that falls from this righteous person? The fruit that falls from this righteous person is this tree. 
It is this tree of life. The fruit that falls is the promise of salvation in the tree of wisdom. The fruit that falls from those who are wise of heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ, where all who take hold of this tree are blessed. We drop, the wise of heart drop the gospel as fruit everywhere they go. And that's why I love how this verse finishes in verse 30, where it says, whoever captures souls is wise. The foolish individual lives for himself, never gets what he actually wants, and only provides irritation to those who are around him. But the righteous people, the ones who experience the faithfulness of God in salvation, daily drop the gospel so that they might capture souls. Maybe your translation, the NIV says, save souls, gathers souls. God's people are meant to be winsome winners of souls as your own life testifies to the gospel which saves and satisfies you. This is the good life. Not just for them, but for you. In the book of Daniel, Daniel gets this stunning picture into the glorious future where God finally ransoms and redeems his people. And the angel, as he's closing this section of Revelation to Daniel, describes these kind of people. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like stars forever and ever. This is a massive paradigm shift for the Christian. We want to be wise. We've seen the benefit of that all over the book of Proverbs. We want to have lives shaped by the wisdom of God. But part of being shaped by God's wisdom is a real desire to capture and gather souls, to turn those who are around you to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does God love, or why does God care about how you interact, love, work, and speak to those around you? He does for all sorts of reasons. It glorifies him. It blesses you. It brings joy. But also included in all of those reasons is that God has a desire to capture souls. God is a God who reaches to dying and lost people and brings them back. And he has chosen to use his people, the church, to gather all whom he has called to this wonderful tree. And this was challenging for me, and this is unique because I'm a pastor, and so my day job intentionally calls me to think about this. It was sober to think about. When we think about biblical wisdom, we think about all sorts of things. But when you assess your motivational principles and your wisdom principles in life, are you consciously thinking about how your life shows its wisdom by gathering others to Jesus. This is both a challenge and a promise. The challenge is that God has called you to live this kind of life, to gather others. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. The workers are are few. You are the one in the field. You are the one God is calling to gather. You are the one God desires to make wise as you turn others to Christ in righteousness. That's the challenge. 
But the promise is that this is something you cannot do on your own and something that God has not called you to do on your own. You do not save people. You don't even point people to yourselves. You point people to this tree. You point people to the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You point them to a tree sufficient in itself to save all who lay hold of it. A tree which is of life which is seen most clearly as the tree of death. The cross where Jesus went to die for those who are dead in their sins so they might have his life by his grace. That is what the whole of our lives is meant to call people towards. Do you consider that? as part of the wise, good life God has for you. The Scottish pastor Horatius Bonar wrote to pastors what Solomon is saying here to all of us. And consider what he says. The question, therefore, which each of us has to answer in his own conscience is, has it been the end of my ministry? Has it been the desire of my heart to save the lost and guide the saved? Is this my aim in every sermon I preach and every visit I pay? Is it under the influence of this feeling that I continually live and walk and speak? Is it for this I pray and toil and fast and weep? Is it for this I spend and am spent? Counting it next to the salvation of my own soul, my chiefest joy to be the instrument of saving others. Is it for this that I exist? To accomplish this, would I gladly die? Have I seen the pleasure of the Lord prospering in my hands? Have I seen souls converted under my ministry? Have God's people found refreshment from my lips and gone on their way rejoicing? This is not the life of the evangelist. This is not the life of the pastor. This is the life of the wise of heart. And what a noble task this is. But how do we actually live this kind of life? Well, certainly, we share the gospel as frequently, as intentionally, and as humbly as we can. And one quick tip for this, I am not a gifted evangelist, but I've realized that when you begin to listen to people and what they are saying, you find yourself in gospel moments you can't ignore. This conversation with my neighbor, I was on my porch doing some work and intending to do just that. And he came up and started talking and the conversation happened and I'm like, here we go. I can't not do something with this. And if we listen to those who are around us, God often brings evangelism opportunities that we're not considering. Why? Because God wants to gather these souls to himself. But in order for us to do this well, we must first understand the gospel. In other words, before we can become winsome to others, we need to understand how God has won us to himself. And seeing how Jesus saves us is not only the footing for our words, but it actually becomes the foundation of our actions before others. In other words, it's not only the message we tell people, but it is the life that reeks of the aroma of Christ when we understand what God has done to save us. And what's interesting is this text in Proverbs deals in four parts. Three of the parts have to do with our relationship towards others. But in the middle, he pauses and he addresses our relationship with God himself. And this is the second point today, the life-giving root of the righteous. Read with me verses 31 through 12, 3. If the righteous is repaid on earth... 
how much more the wicked and the sinner. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Solomon's done this a number of times in this passage, uh, starting end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11. He's always looking at wisdom in the context of community. But he's very frequently come into texts where he's talking about others and he's inserted the reality of you before God. And that's because how we think about God has to shape how we interact with others. And let me give you two examples. If we deny that God exists, then we reserve the weight of defining what is good and what is loving on our own terms, or on the terms of whatever political philosophy, social philosophy, economic philosophy you think to be fitting. Which means to deny that there is a God who speaks and has authority is when you ask the question, what is good, you have to ask another question. Good for whom? Who is the beneficiary of what is good? And how do we know that to be true? And at some point, you have to answer who is the recipient of what is good, and you get to make a qualitative decision of what that good is and who benefits and who doesn't benefit. But even more, if you believe that a God does exist and yet you think wrongly, kind of like my neighbor did, that you can earn your own righteousness before God, that too has an impact on the lives of those who are around you. Because what you will tend to do is you will either see those around you as merely a tool to increase your own righteousness points or a threat to your righteousness points when you see someone else doing good and loving people better than you. We weigh them in this balance. But here, the wise are learning to see your relationship with God as the authority through the lens that God himself is providing. And at first glance, the text we just read sounds a lot like what my neighbor said he believed about God, doesn't it? If you do good and love others, you'll get God's favor. The good man earns God's favor. We see that God has promised to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. He's going to repay them. There's the equation. Do good, get good. That seems to be what's being held up here. But for anyone who thinks you can earn God's favor by being good enough, there is a verse in the middle of all of this that throws a wrench in our entire construct. And that is the verse that says you would love discipline. Who or why would anyone who's trying to earn favor by your own efforts of righteousness or to save yourself by your own track record of good works why would anyone in that mindset love discipline? How would that even make sense to us? No one is disciplined for what is good. We're disciplined for what is wrong. We're disciplined for where we're failing. We discipline, we're disciplined for where we're not measuring up or we need correction. And wouldn't we then, if our own righteousness is our own track record, wouldn't we fear that discipline for fear of being found wanting incomplete and imperfect. But here, the wise man loves discipline. And it's those who fear it 
who are called stupid. And so how do we understand this loving desire for correction and yet this God who promises to reward us for our actions and repay us for either what is good or what is bad by understanding the root which holds us in the midst of God's judgment. When we encounter righteousness in the book of Proverbs, that word should shine in our eyes. That word is where we find the gospel time and time again in the book of Proverbs. Righteousness is a doorway to where we actually bring in the reality of what Jesus has done into this book. And on one side of this door of righteousness is what follows, our responsibility of doing what is right and not what is wrong, of doing what accords with obedience and not disobedience. That is our responsibility to live righteous lives. But on the other side of that door, that is the entryway to how we get to all of that application, is the God who is himself righteous, who has promised to give us righteousness when we love him, who has promised himself to make us righteous by his own mercy and not by our own works. And there's this summary statement here at the end where he says, no one is established by wickedness. In this day of judgment, those who pursue wickedness will not last but the root, the anchor of the righteous will never be moved. In Isaiah 45, God is sharing with Israel this hope, this hope that they will be delivered from discipline among the nations by righteousness. But look at the language God uses in Isaiah 54, verse 14. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. And we see this all the time in the Old Testament, where God says, be righteous. We saw this in the book of Deuteronomy, where he says, circumcise your hearts. But by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, what does God say? He says, I will circumcise your hearts. Time and time again, we see the call to be righteous in the Old Testament. And you ought to, and you do have the ability to do good works. But ultimately, for us to be righteous as God demands us to be, it is God who establishes us in righteousness. And how does he do it? Well, almost immediately after Isaiah 54, 14, Isaiah 55 begins. And look at what he says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and labor for that which does not satisfy. If you want to look later, take that verse, Isaiah 55, verse 2, and look at the implications that has in Isaiah, or in Proverbs uh, chapter 12, verse 11. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So here is the steadfastness, hope we have in the face of judgment. This covenant God makes in love with David. The reality of the doctrine 
of divine justice, this repayment we see in Proverbs, is burdensome. In fact, it's almost nauseating for you to think that God actually keeps a record, that God will actually repay you for all of the wrong you have done and all of the right you have done. The problem is, is that we know when we hold up these scales at the end of the day that we are not going to be righteousness heavy. And we might think, well, I'm a pretty good person. But I heard, uh, I, I heard a question posed the other day that should cause our guts to feel the weightiness of a God who repays. And that is, if the person closest to you, your spouse, your roommate, your child, your best friend, if they could know all of your thoughts for just a day, would they still want to be with you? Or would they see the depth of wickedness, the inward turn of selfishness, and a desire for what others have that we are willing to take and see the crookedness of our hearts? None of us pass that exam. And that is even with a subjective judge like your spouse or your roommate. How much more before the objective God of justice himself. But here, God calls those who are wearied at the task to come to him. To come for those who are thirsty and Jesus picks up this idea in Isaiah 55, and look at what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness which they cannot earn. Righteousness which they cannot amount to a saving uh, a level of in themselves. Righteousness which brings us favor with God, for they shall be satisfied. How are we satisfied? By coming to Jesus who gives us righteousness with God and enables us to walk through the door of righteous living towards others. To come to Jesus who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden of counting and coup keeping and I will give you rest. Come to me who is sufficient to bring you favor with God himself. This is what it means to be established in righteousness is to take Christ's by faith. Perhaps you've driven around town and seen these massive uh, pine trees that are still tilted over from the windstorm we had a couple months ago. And what you see are these massive roots that go out, but they have no depth. But here the root of Christ drives us so deeply based off of his perfect obedience that in judgment the winds will blow and the storms will come, but the tree will stand. This is what we get to call others into. This is the wonderful privilege of not laboring for our own righteousness or seeing others as unnatural threats or trying to find salvation on our own terms, but of finding all of it in Jesus Christ. If you've never considered that, I pray that you would find this root today. That you would find the reality of judgment to be just as real as the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that you would come and be rooted in him by faith.
But just as receiving God's righteousness shapes our standing before him, that is coming through the entrance of the door of righteousness, it also shapes the life we live when we walk through the door. That is, when we're made righteous in Christ, it allows us to keep the greatest commandments, that we are able to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because Jesus has made a dead heart alive. It has made a heart that had no concern for God to have desperate concern for him, but then it also allows us to love others unburdened from fearing them or using them or our own anxiety. In other words, when we um, come to right to Christ in righteousness, we then really believe that living in light of that righteousness is our best life, no matter how difficult or how countercultural it seems. It gives us the security to stand to do things that are contrary to a heart which lacks sense, but natural to a heart that is made wise in Jesus Christ. And in closing, Solomon gives us two practical examples of how we can apply this righteousness in our own lives. The first is the safe house of the righteous. Read with me and note, notice his illustration in verse seven, beginning in verse four. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. So as we continue to go on in the book of Proverbs, Solomon's writing and his pace, kind of like a snare drum, is going to pick up. The Proverbs become punchier and punchier, and each proverb that we encounter, that's each of those kind of like comparing and contrasting sentences that we see. That's a proverb. It's a literary unit. Those can be sermons in and of themselves. And I encourage you to take these home, take the sermon text home each week and kind of break them up into smaller sections. And I promise that if you look at those proverbs and you kind of roll them around in the mouth of your soul and suck on them and taste them, you will find wonderfully practical applications in each and every one of those. However, it would take us years to get through proverbs at that pace. And so what I'm going to do as Proverbs picks up is I'm going to find the general sense, kind of the strand of familiarity and, and themes that Solomon is giving, and we're going to focus on those. And the general sense of what we just read in verses 4 through 7 is this, that the righteous refuse to hurt, harm, or steal from their community to get what they already have in the gospel. From a humanistic perspective, we're generally predatorial, offensive, or mean towards others for our own self-preservation, right? It's when you've cornered someone who's done wrong that they seem to be the meanest to you. Or when they think you're about to find out about their lie, that they become more calloused towards you. We put down others, we take from others, we manipulate others in order to protect or experience our own sense of security or well-being. This shapes the small, seemingly insignificant decisions of your life, like when you have two cups of coffee, you bring it to your spouse, and you notice this one has a little bit more, so keep that for yourself, or give the less one to your wife, or the weightier decisions in life, like you taking physical intimacy from your boyfriend or girlfriend, which is only meant to be experienced by their spouse someday. 
But the promise Solomon gives is that though our own hearts scheme, and when sinful hearts scheme against us, that the wicked will be overthrown. That though they are scheming for their own secret gain, it will be them who are swept up in a trap, a trap of judgment. But the righteous, we see in verse 7, live in a safe house. We've seen this house before when it spoke of Lady Wisdom's house in chapter 9. Listen to chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, that is, she has made her barbecue. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, so again, that's the same word, lacks heart that we see in Proverbs 11, verse 30. Come and eat of my bread. Drink of the wine I have mixed. We hear Isaiah 55. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. As we go about living our lives and interacting with those around us, you have the privilege, if you have been by grace, brought out of the house of works and put into the house of grace with her splendid pillars and wonderful provision, we have the ability to show that satisfaction, that provision, and that safety to those who are around us with our lives. Where we are able to set aside the desperation and the justification of trying to earn satisfaction, belonging, wealth, status, when Christ has given all of that to us in his blood. We begin to model to others the safety of the house that endures by refusing to see those around us as objects that we need to consume for our own satisfaction. When people encounter you, do they encounter a heart satisfied in the house of the gospel, which then makes all of your interactions with them safe? Do they feel like when they come to you that you're not constantly looking for an angle wherein you want to take something from them or use them for something? Or do they find you satisfied in Christ so that you are more concerned about what you give to them than what you take from them. So your dreams are just and not deceitful. So you are a crown and not a rottenness. But Solomon's last point talks largely about the way in which the righteous person thinks about himself and thinks about others. We see our final point in, that the, in this, the gentle and generous fruit of the righteous. Read with me Proverbs 12, verses 8 through 12. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of a twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. So don't we see, in kind of this theme in this text, a gentle and generous heart of the, the individual who has good sense. What good sense this is. 
Here you see a person who is so considerate that they consider the life of their beasts. Now here's the thing. In this culture, they're not talking, uh, we love this. We get all like, God loves, wants me to treat my dog great. And, and do, treat your dog great. But they don't have pets in Israel. Their animals are their tools. And yet these people are so transformed in their heart that they treat their own tools as if they have deep regard for their lives. This is profound. This is a stunning sort of gentleness. And more than that, these individuals are content to do work that really matters instead of endlessly chasing dreams and accomplishing nothing. We can only have this sort of good sense when God opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. The gospel makes us humble and gentle. It frees us from constantly searching for the praise of man. I love what we see in verse 9 here. What Solomon is saying, he's saying basically it's better to be less thought of by outsiders than, but to be well thought of by those who know you than it is to be well thought of by your social media followers but to be unloving to those near you. Better to be thought lowly of but to have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread who have no one who wants to help you. This is a wonderful message for us in our world that is driven by the fear of man and performance. Think of this in a modern way. Better to be someone who has a job which seems insignificant in light of worldly aspirations, but who sets his plow, his hand to the plow of working for the Lord in everything, than to have a job title of glory, but to be thoughtless of God's glory. Better to be seen as a boring man who rarely takes his wife out, but who loves his wife like Jesus loves the church than a man who affords her nights in the nicest hotel, but loves her poorly. Better to be a parent who looks like their home is completely out of control, but raises kids who love and obey God than to have a Pinterest-ready home with children empty of the gospel. When, can, in the face of a demanding world that wants to like, retweet, and comment on everything we present to them, how can we stand in such paradoxes? Only when we understand the righteousness of Christ that we stand in. When Christ justifies us before God where what Christ says about us to God is greater than what the world says about us in any circumstance. If Jesus stands in our defense, we can take the criticism and the, less, the thinking less of of the world. But when those who are near to us, when we stand in Christ, that means that those who are near to us actually encounter the warmth and welcome of the gospel at every turn. That even though some might think less of us, those who really know us, see the gospel in our lives. We all see that the wicked always want, but they can never have, and this makes them greedy and unwilling to share with others, but the righteous bear fruit, fruit enough for them and fruit enough for others. You've probably heard the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians, but consider these fruit in, in application to those who are around you. Galatians 5, 19 through 23. Here's the contrast. If you're led by the Spirit, or excuse me, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. We hear what we just saw, the one who sows trouble in his own household. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, in case he didn't cover it, now he's included it. I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The righteous have been so rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that they produce this kind of fruit to generously share with others. Look at this wonderful bounty, which when shaken should fall from your limbs. When blown upon by society, this is the bounty that falls. This is what other people get to enjoy. This is what you are satisfied with. And when can we find ourselves satisfied with these fruits? When can we generously give these to those who are around us? Only when we become comfortable with the righteousness of Christ and know that that root will never fail to feed us, never fail to satisfy us. And from that, our lives are transformed to share with others. It frees us from fear, from selfishness, and from our own judgment. And so being established by the fruit of the gospel of Jesus' grace, let us seek to be fruitful disciple makers, fruitful evangelists, and neighbors to those around us, for we have an enduring hope that this life is the lasting and wise life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that this church, this body of believers puts roots in our community and in the lives of our neighbors and our families and our coworkers because we have been rooted richly in the gospel. We have seen not only what Jesus has done to give us his righteousness, but we have seen that his righteousness transforms us to love others in a way that the world cannot to love others free from the burden of performance or of losing, but instead fed by the nutrients of the gospel through the root of righteousness we have in faith. Lord, make us wise of heart. Make us gatherers of souls. Help us as we point others to the tree of Christ, which saved even ourselves. We pray this in your name. Amen.